I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Romans, to chapter 7. As well, I'm going to be making reference throughout the sermon to several of the questions and answers in the Heidelberg Catechism. So you can find Lord's Day 43. You can navigate to that in your Thin Forms and Prayers book or in the back of the hymnal as well. You'll find it, Lord's Day 43 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, do take note. Regarding next week, we will have a guest minister, Reverend Simon Yusta. And just so you have some idea of who he is, last week, classes, uh, it was last week, days is a thousand years, and so it is with classes. We met the 12 churches of classes uh, to deliberate on various matters of advice. And one of those, which was before us, was to determine whether or not to provisionally accept another church from outside of the Federation into the URC. And that is a church in South Africa, in Cape Town, and we determined to do so. And the minister from that church is Reverend Yasta, and he's going to be out here next week. So we praise the Lord for the opportunity to serve their church. That's partly why they desired that, that we would be in a mutual relationship. And then to be blessed by his gifts as well. Now, this morning, we come to the final sermon looking at the Ten Commandments in the subsection of the Catechism. As the Catechism seeks to just summarize what we believe the Bible teaches and we work our way systematically through it, we come to the end of the Ten Commandments. Lord willing, not very long from now, Reverend Smith will begin in the Lord's Prayer. And this morning we come to the Tenth Commandment, which is stated this way in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And our key text this morning is going to be in the book of Romans as the apostle is reflecting on how the Lord used this commandment to drive him to the gospel and then to genuine Christian sanctification. Romans chapter 7, beginning of verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time before his word. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for having preserved your scriptures down to this day and having preserved us as well to hear them. We pray that you would please open our hearts, give speed to our minds to readily understand and to receive what you would declare through your word. Preserve us from all error. And Lord, receive glory as you transform us through this means of grace. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I imagine quite a few have driven from Phoenix over to San Diego. And if you take Highway 10, then you'd be familiar with a site along the way. As you are in California and nearing the coast, about an hour off, you come to two tall mountains and you pass between the two of them. And when you are facing westward, the one to the south is San Jacinto. San Jacinto is unusually prominent, both because of how steep it is. Now, San Gregonio is actually taller. That's the other one of the two. But it doesn't always strike people as being taller because it's surrounded by other hills and lower mountains. San Jacinto rises right out of the desert floor. And so it is in relief at nearly 11,000 feet, very prominent. When I was 20 years old, a group of friends invited me to go on a hike up San Jacinto, and I knew it'd be difficult, but there is something extra when you hike San Jacinto for the first time. It features what is called a false peak. A false peak is one where, as you are going up, you think you have reached the pinnacle. You think you are coming to the summit, and only once you get onto that, then you realize what you were coming to was a subdome blocking the view of the top. And you're actually quite far off. And that can be very demoralizing. You thought that you were there, and then you go, oh, I still have another 2,000 feet to climb. We are not there yet. And there's something very similar to that with the moral law of God. If what you think is the pinnacle of perfection, is the summit of sanctity, is simply outward moral conformity, then you may think, yeah, I can do this. I can attain. And Paul himself describes how prior to his conversion, he was blameless outwardly according to the law. Nobody could see anything wrong that he was doing. But then when he comes to the 10th commandment, it's as though he stands on the peak of that subdome and he sees what is actually required. What is actually required by God. And so this morning, the Holy Spirit sets before you in the word this pinnacle of perfection that we are called to as human beings. And we are going to consider first what God forbids and what God requires in the 10th commandment. And then secondly, we are going to look at what extent to what extent we can attain that in this life. And I'll speak predominantly as two believers. We are a congregation of believers. To what extent is it possible? Our third main division is simply to ask, if it is not possible to attain the perfection required in the law, why does the Lord require that we preach it so pointedly and strive after it? Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If that's not, in fact, possible, what does he call for this? So these are the main ideas that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, in the very first place, as I said, we need to focus first, what does God actually forbid and require in the 10th commandment? Whether you go with the Hebrew word in Exodus chapter 20, whether you go with the Greek word that we find in Romans 7, 
The term covet has a broad meaning and then it has more narrow meaning. Just like English words can often have a lot of different meanings based on the context, broadly this word simply means to desire. And so it's very contextually dependent. Because certainly not all desire is forbidden, although there have been times, I imagine for some of you, where you feel almost like you're not supposed to want anything. If God didn't give it to me, I shouldn't want it at all. And if that was the case, nobody would ever seek a job when they don't have one. Nobody would ever seek food when they're hungry. Desire of itself is good. Desire is something God uses to lead us towards the blessings he desires to give. God himself desires things. Jesus taught us to desire. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Store up for yourselves heavenly treasures. Desire is not the problem when we talk about covetousness. And it's important to say that because sometimes we use the word covet in an odd way. We say things like, I covet your prayers. And there's no wrong way. Well, we're sinful and we can probably twist away. It's hard to want prayer wrongly. So what is the Bible getting at? It's talking about desiring contrary to God's desires. Wanting without respect to God's wants. That's the issue. And it goes to the very depths of who we are. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 113, puts it this way. What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Not even the slightest. That is not an exaggeration. That is what is required. Not just, sometimes we use the word ideal, like it's aspirational, like, well, wouldn't it be nice? But no, this is what is actually required. This is what souls will live and die by when God judges righteously in Jesus Christ. This is the law. And it's utterly reasonable that that should be the requirement when you think about the fact that God is spirit and has given us a portion of spirituality. You are more than your outward flesh. And so it's right that God would desire Purity to go to the very essence of who you are, to touch the soul, and he perceives all of that. This is what is demonstrated in the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 139, where it says in verse 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now it's a bold prayer. And this is a person who cares more about being cleansed by the Lord than whatever discomfort will come to heart and life in having their true self exposed. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The only way that is going to last is holiness. Sin will not follow us into the age to come. And the cry of the psalmist is to walk in that way, in the way that endures, to have a life that conforms to it. And certainly it's not just that our outward sinful habits will fall away in glory, but we're going to continue to covet. We will be totally pure, and that's what we are told to aim for. That's the positive side of this law. To put it in the words of one of the, I would say, most 
illuminating of the Puritan writers on this particular subject, Thomas Watson. He has an essay on coveting in his book, The Ten Commandments. You can find it online for free. I'd strongly recommend it as a good use of the Lord's Day. Thomas Watson, he describes it as a constant fiery panting after perfect conformity. When I put it that way, if we are honest with ourselves, how frequently and how urgently do we constantly pant with a fiery fervency for utter holiness? None of us surely does that. But that is what is required in this, as it says in our catechism, question answer 114, rather with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. The commandment, as summarized by Jesus, is love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, which means that if you use any of those, even one one thousandth of one percent, Alternatively, you are rendering to the infinite majesty of the almighty creator less than what he rightly deserves. And not just deserves in some sense that as a legal, technical matter, he's entitled to it. He's the best. He deserves it. In the sense that there would be nothing better for any creation to do than to fall in line with his will. Because his will is truly what is good. Of course... I know what some of you are thinking because I have had this thought myself many, many times, which is, is that even possible? And you may meet people who tell you that in some sense that is possible in this life. And this brings us to our second main division to address that. To what extent is the sanctity of the 10th commandment possible in this age? To what extent? First, I invite you to look with me at what we have confessed as a tradition, and then we're going to hold that up against the scripture. As a tradition, as Reformed Christians, we confess in question and answer 114, but can those converted to God keep the commandments perfectly? Now, mind you, there were some at that time, a group called Anabaptists, who were saying that they could keep it perfectly. So this section exists in the real world. And to this day, there are people who actually say that. You may have met such people. I have met such a person who claimed that he had not sinned in two years. Shortly thereafter that, he was put into prison for abusing his family. But he said, well, I haven't sinned in two years. We say, no, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Only a small beginning. Is that what the scripture says? Take, for instance, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Or 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Take Paul in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, I have not attained, nor have I reached perfection. Paul hasn't. David didn't. And so when we consider a person thinking that in this life they will... It's mistaken. That's not because the Lord lacks power. Let's be clear about this. Christians are united across traditions in our fundamental belief that the moment when you die, the Lord will work such a work of transformation upon your soul that you will never want or desire sin again. And the Lord is sovereign and he could do that now. And yet he has permitted our soul largely to operate far beneath what it will be. 
we have only a small beginning. Does the Bible describe some as righteous? Yes, it does. But when it describes those people, it's talking about a relative sanctity compared to the world. And so this is very important. On the one hand, we have only a small beginning. On the other hand, that beginning looks enormous compared to those who are not seeking the Lord. So the Bible is not here justifying, and we're not trying to justify, a low standard of sanctification compared to people. It's just staying realistic about compared to the Lord himself. What we confess in question answer 114 is this, nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, believers do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. And the all there includes the tenth. That we would desire and seek and strive never to think or will anything contrary to the Lord's will. So that we are taking captive the thoughts of our minds, searching our hearts, saying, Lord, is this what you desire for me? It is possible to attain something in this life that is remarkably distinct from the world and even from less committed Christians. And I would not want to mislead you. Listen carefully to what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 13. Speaking as a prayer to the Lord, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous ones are the ones where you know what you're doing. You've made your plan. You are now committed to it. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And notice this is stated as a prayer. It's a longing for grace to change this person. He still acknowledges he's responsible. But on the other hand, he knows the grace to overcome presumptuous sins will come from the Lord. Keep back your servant. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. There are degrees of sin. And the Lord judges sin differently. Judged against his infinitude, of course, all sin merits death. But judged against other sins, not all sins are equally heinous. And here the Lord is indicating through the psalmist, it is possible to be innocent of great transgression. It is possible to walk where you are not constantly, presumptuously sinning against the Lord. You're called to that, and I'm called to that. When we hold one another accountable, we don't just hold one another accountable not to do the most obvious horrible things but to turn away from all intentional sin and so this is what we're called to and the extent to which we are able to attain it if we are not able to attain to utter perfection why then does the Lord want it preached so pointedly because again the way it has to be preached is not try to do pretty good It must be preached, be perfect. That is the way that we're called to preach it. Be perfect. Every moment of every day, never fail. That's the goal. And the way that it has to be said, and the way that we'll be judged, ultimately, those who are in Christ have a justification from outside of us. Nevertheless, as to the rewards, there is a judgment. There is a vindication. And this question is so common that it is anticipated in our catechism. See what it says there in 115. 
Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached appointedly? You can almost imagine the congregation saying that and saying it to the people who then wrote that down. They've heard it. Because, Pastor, it makes us feel bad. And it makes us feel at times hopeless about sanctification. Why? And this brings us to our third and final division. And we're going to look at two reasons why the Lord desires his law to be preached pointedly and why he calls us to strive after it perfectly. The first is this. It's in the process of remembering and pursuing the 10th commandment that we are humbled and driven into the arms of Christ for mercy. If you're only thinking about the external, it is possible to build up this sense of yourself that you're fine. You, almost, you don't need a savior. You're doing what you've been called to. But when you recognize that the internal matters and God is perfect and he would be an unjust judge if he wanted less than perfection, moral perfection. Then this drives us to the gospel. See what it says in 115. So that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ that is exactly Paul's experience. Look at me at verse 7 of Romans 7. He says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, he has the moral law written upon his heart, and yet through our fallenness, that is much effaced, much distorted. It doesn't look the way it should. But then he comes to the 10th commandment, and it says, You shall not covet. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And Paul's sinfulness, like ours, is so extensive that he's able to even sin against the righteous command. What is he coveting here? People have different ideas, and probably just as a normal human, throughout his life he coveted all kinds of things that you covet too. But something that Paul in particular was coveting was to be righteous according to the law. But a person who has sin cannot be righteous according to the law. They've already broken it. Even what they do is just what is required from that point, but it doesn't make up the debt. And so at any moment when you desire to become acceptable to God, to be finally and ultimately safe and secure in him through your own righteousness, you're coveting a righteousness that God has not desired for you in your fallen condition. The righteousness God desires for you in your fallen condition is one that we have in the past, described in terms of recumbency. Not a word we normally use, and yet it's one of the most colorful for thinking about this. You've all seen ordinary upright bicycles. But then occasionally you'll see somebody riding a, rec a recumbent bicycle, and that's the kind where they lean back, and they're low to the ground. Their whole weight is resting on their back as they're riding this bicycle. They are reclined recumbent faith in the gospel is where you rest yourself entirely upon the promise that in Jesus Christ you are counted righteous. And no longer to try to establish your acceptance on the basis of what you do, but instead to seek to live righteously because it pleases God and because it's good for the world, because it bears his image, but not to justify yourself. Paul was trying to get up out of the recumbent position. In fact, at that point, he had never even been in it. He's upright on the bicycle. We are called in this way by the 10th commandment to lean into the promise of grace in Jesus Christ. 
And that glorifies the Lord more than all of your corrupt works ever would. Because it shows that he is strong and gracious. Turn with me and look at one passage that makes very clear that this is what was going on in the apostle. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, beginning at verse 5, the apostle again is reflecting on his life before he was converted. Here the apostle says, beginning at verse 5, As to the law, I was a Pharisee. And that was the most strict group of Jewish people. It was a school of thought about how the laws to be kept. The Pharisees were known for putting laws around the laws, a kind of fence or perimeter around. So if the law says, you know, keep the Sabbath day, well, we're going to go even further and come up with rules that weren't even in the rule book about how to not break that law. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had through those things, I have now counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and this is the clincher, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Sometimes described as an extrospective righteousness. Extrospective meaning looking away from yourself, looking to the righteousness promised in the gospel. That you become united with Christ covenantally, forensically, legally, and then there is a genuine counting of that righteousness to you. It's not just forensic. There's also the gift of the Holy Spirit, and so we are united spiritually, mystically with Christ. But the Lord uses this 10th commandment, does he not, to bring up to us, I still need grace. I'll give you an example of this, and I admit that it is mundane, but it's real, and it's probably at the level that many of us are are operating at. This is at least where I'm at in a given week. A couple of weeks ago, you know, I've had it on my mind for a while to get a shed. I want a shed to put things in, to be responsible, to not leave everything out. I'm going to get a shed. And then I also want, you know, somewhere between frugality and miserliness, I'm waiting for a sale. And I tell myself I'm doing the right thing. I'm desiring the shed in a godly way. And so then a store has a sale on a shed. And I make a plan because it won't fit. The box won't fit in my car. So I make a plan to rent a truck. And I rent the truck and I go to the store. I even called them first to make sure that they had enough because I don't want to show up having rented a truck and it's gone. And I show up at the store and they were all gone. In a period of 35 minutes, six sheds had gone out the door. And I thought that I had tolerated it. And then I waited and I called again. And this, I got the, the truck and paid a second time, so I've thrown away time and money. And I call the store again to make sure they have sheds. And they say, yes, we do. And I show up at the store 30 minutes before opening. But I know the store to open early. 
that they'll, they do that, even though it's marked differently. And I walk in, and I turn the aisle. This was this week. This is not like I've progressed since then. This is now. I turn the aisle where the sheds are. I know just where they are now, and I'm going quickly. I don't loiter for anything. I go to where the sheds are, and I hear the voice of a man as I turn the corner say, yeah, I'll give them both to me. And he got both sheds, and he didn't even seem to want them. And I confess before you, and it's not, this part is not funny because the Lord is grieved at sin. I was almost dyspeptic with rage. Completely, be, I mean, not, nobody, it was inward. Just like, this is an injustice in the universe. I did the work. And I paid and I've lost. As if the Lord doesn't make a table for us. As if the money I spent on that truck is not something the Lord can provide. As if the time that was spent on this... He can't extend my life by that length if he wills, and I didn't deserve it. I was, you know, we often think of covetousness in terms of things. And I don't think I per se coveted the shed. And I was, certainly wasn't making plans to steal one. But I realized then as I was driving over, I ended up driving to another store that had it way far away. And it was, as I was driving, I had this thought, which I'm sure was the Lord, because I'm not so sanctified of myself, which was, it is far more valuable to you to confront just how petty you are concerning providence than it is to have that shed today. The shed is not so important. What is important is that you realize that you covet convenience. You covet ease far more than you desire to honor the Lord in your heart, to acknowledge, Lord, this is your will. And that's just a shed. How am I going to do if something big happens? Isn't that true of all of us, that we pray now, Lord, drive me back to Christ, give me his righteousness, and please strengthen me for whatever is ahead. That brings us to the second way that the Lord uses the Tenth Commandment. It spurs us to push further into this Christian conformity than merely outwardly. Question answer 115. So that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image, until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. So we never stop striving. That is, we're constantly coming to the decision, will I rest on the lower, the false peak, or will I keep moving towards the top? And you shouldn't say, well, because I can't make it to the top, it's not worth going. The view is better as you go up. The view is communion with Christ, the view is service of others. Just because you can't, you know, if maybe one of your four tires is at low tire pressure doesn't mean you slash them all. Just because you don't have the totality of righteousness that you desire doesn't mean that you give up on the pursuit. Philippians chapter 3, again, where we were just at, Paul comes to verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is our calling in the 10th commandment, to press into Christ and press upward towards a Christian conformity. So I simply appeal to you, 
Don't loiter in external conformity. Anyone who does, if you are genuinely content not to deal with the internal, you're not converted or you are in a terribly frightening place. And you have wandered from the call that you have in the Lord. And the Lord calls you back. Don't loiter there. On the other hand, don't become demoralized. When you look at how high it is, don't become demoralized. Say to yourself, I will get there. Not in this life, but I'll be there. I'm going to stand on that summit. And the Lord has given me the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is guiding me and strengthening me. And I can persevere in him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving in your scriptures and through the ministry of the church this remembrance of what you require. Help us, Lord, we pray, to genuinely feel contrition over the ways that we fall out of conformity, whether that be, as the commandment says, wanting our neighbor's spouse or wanting our neighbor's home or wanting our neighbor's means of work or transport or wanting anything you don't desire for us at this time in your way. We pray that you would give us the heart of Christ more and more, for we ask it in his name. Amen.